0: They were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them speaking in, in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with your joy in your presence. Brothers, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were, told were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved.
1: All right. Thanks. That's our Deacon Dave. Thanks for that. It's a lot of hard words in that passage, so appreciate that. You know, the scriptures say to devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. So that's what we're doing each week. We're reading a chapter from the book of Acts that we've been going through. And if you're new, welcome. Glad you're checking us out. Hope you'll keep returning. We want you to know that... God's the one who designed the church. It was his idea. He has a purpose for it. Jesus is the head and the founder of the church. And so I, I'd like to get an idea. How many people have some sort of church involvement or attachment to some other church before South Point? Let me see your hands. Involved in some other kind of church. All right. A lot of you. How many of you, though, would say pretty much your only real attachment has been to this church, South Point? Let me see your hand. All right. Good number of you as well. All right. Because see, the way it typically works is whatever your church... Experiences. The first one is the one you think church ought to be, right? Like the first one is that's church. That's the norm. That's the way it should be. And, you know, a lot of a church, parts of it are simply cultural traditions and personal preferences. But there are other parts where God has laid down a blueprint for us, a pattern for us to follow. And we see that in the book of Acts. That's the history book of the early church, what the first Christians did. And if you missed The message last week where we started off in Acts chapter 1, you can go back and watch it online or listen to the podcast. But you remember we left off with the disciples in Jerusalem. Jesus has just ascended into heaven. He told them to hang out there in in, in Jerusalem until they had received the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit. And so now here it is. It's 10 days later. It's called the Day of Pentecost. It's a big Jewish festival where... Jewish people from all over the region, from many nations, come together in Jerusalem to celebrate this this amazing festival. So thousands of people are are wandering around the streets of Jerusalem and buzzes in the air because they'd heard about this Jesus who died and the rumors that he had risen from the dead and the whispers are all over the place. And then something astounding happens and it becomes one of the most amazing days in all of history. The second chapter of Acts is one of the most Important and groundbreaking chapters in all the Bible, one of the most revolutionary events that have affected the world more than anything else. Because this is the day the true church of Jesus is born. It's the birthday of the church. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is first proclaimed publicly. Christian baptism is instituted, and the Holy Spirit becomes a permanent indwelling presence in the life of all believers. So it's a big deal, and the world's never going to be the same after this day in Acts chapter 2. And you and I are still a part of this, feeling the ripple effects of this 2,000 years later. In this incredibly important chapter, we're going to see the three marks of what the church should be. And those three marks are also three resources that were given to help us grow and to live for Christ. They are the Holy Spirit, the gospel, and the church. So let's look at those. First, the Holy Spirit. Who is he? Well, he's a person. He's not an impersonal force. He is the third person of what the Bible calls the Godhead, which means that there is one God in three persons. Christians uniquely believe that there's one God in three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that they're all equally God. And that's difficult for us to understand and grasp because there's no one else like that. We can only be one person in one being. And yet it's taught in scripture and it's foundational to our understanding of God, especially being a God of love. Because, see, he has eternally existed in a relationship of three persons who are sharing this, this love within one being. And while they all three share the same attributes of being God, they each have a different, distinct role. What's the role of the Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus tells us, he tells his disciples in John 15, 26, that when the counselor comes, and that's another name for the Holy Spirit, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, Who goes out from the Father, he will what? He'll testify about me. So see, the purpose of the Spirit is to point us to Jesus. Now, there's lots of churches that are very Spirit-oriented, right? It's all about the focus on the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. But notice the Spirit isn't here to draw attention to himself, but to point to and exalt Jesus Christ. And so the Spirit is here to convict us of the truth of Jesus our sin and that we need a savior, the truth of who Jesus is. And he shows us that truth through his word, okay, through scriptures. Now, when the spirit arrives on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, this isn't the first time he's ever been around. I mean, you see him in the Old Testament, but it's pretty rare and it's for special occasions. The the spirit didn't descend on all people in the Old Testament, but just a few at select times for specific purposes. For example, the Holy Spirit came upon Samson so that he could fight a battle, right? Or he came upon Isaiah so he could prophesy or upon Moses or David so they could be good leaders. But he never uh, indwelled them permanently in order to make them more godly. That wasn't his role back then. In the Old Testament, see, you have these laws. God gave laws, these high moral standards, The problem is nobody could ever follow them because all we have is our own weakened, corrupt willpower. And in our own power, we can never please God. We need a power beyond ourselves, a supernatural power. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us, because in our own strength, in our own sinful nature, we're dead. We can't do anything to please God. That's why the Spirit comes and brings life to us. He enlivens and empowers us to live for God, to grow and become like Christ. And so that's very unique to this Christian age, this spirit age, where he indwells every believer permanently. You know why? Because God doesn't ask us to do something that he doesn't empower us to do. See, people will often put off becoming a Christian because they say, well, I don't think I can live up to what God expects of me. I I think I need to clean up my life first and then I'll become a Christian. And that's exactly the opposite way that it works. You can't clean up your life first on your own. First, you put your trust in Christ and then you receive the Holy Spirit who helps you start making the changes that you need to make. So we need his power and it's absolutely essential. According to Paul, the apostle in, in Romans 8, 9, he says, if anyone doesn't have the spirit of Christ, then... They don't belong to Christ. And that's why ever since the Spirit's arrival in Acts 2, when he announces his arrival with these supernatural phenomenon to draw a crowd from all the thousands of people there in the city from all over the world and gives these miraculous signs in order to gain a hearing so people pay attention and they'll know these miraculous signs are evidence that this message is from God. (laughs) right now. <laughs> the bomb cyclone thing, right? It goes to wind. You, you, yeah. Now, see, that's, that's what was going on back then, is you could hear the sound of a violent raging wind, but there was no wind. So that would, like, get your attention, wouldn't it? So that, that, that fills the room, and then all the crowd starts gathering around outside going, what is going on around here? And, and, and it's no coincidence that God uses the sign of wind because Jesus earlier will compare the Holy Spirit to wind. In fact, the same Greek word for spirit is the same word for wind or breath. Look what he says in John 3, 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. See, so you can't see the wind, but you know it's there by the effects, right? <laughs> you see all the junk blowing all down the street today, Right? The trees and the leaves and everything. You know the wind's there. Same way with the Spirit. You can't see the Spirit. But by faith, we know He's there because we see the effects. We see the changes He makes, the way He transforms us. We know He's real. Now, the other phenomenon beyond the wind was tongues of fire hovering above their heads. So it's like these tongues in the shape of a flame that came to rest upon them. And I think that's because you see not only wind, but fire as a Symbol of power. Remember in the Old Testament? God's fiery presence came down on Mount Sinai to meet with Moses. And the pillar of fire came up on the tabernacle and it filled the temple. But now, in the age of the Spirit, God no longer lives or dwells in these buildings made of stone, but He lives in us. We have become His temple. We have become his mobile tabernacle, see, so we don't ever have to take a trip to the Holy Land. We don't have to travel to some sacred place like Mecca because wherever we go, the dwelling of God goes. We are his temple. He goes with us wherever we go. And so that's really unique to this Christian age. And then they began to speak in these other tongues or languages. And a lot of Christians today believe that this is a continuing gift, that Christians still speak in tongues. Others say, no, that was just for a specific purpose. And uh, it's no longer needed. It's ceased. And that's a very controversial issue for a number of reasons. And one of them is what you see going on back in Acts chapter two, those kinds of tongues are very different from what you see being practiced today by Pentecostal and charismatic Christians, which is more of like an unknown, nobody knows what they're saying kind of tongue. So it's a continuing debate. And listen, while I don't share the view of Pentecostal and charismatic Christians, you know what? There are a number of people at South Point who do and people all over the world who do. And we all get along because we worship the same Lord and we keep the unity of the spirit because the emphasis is never on the gifts of the spirit of prophecy and tongues and administration, leadership, serving and mercy, but it's on the fruit of of the Spirit. He produces love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and all those other Christ-like qualities. And that's the most important thing. But let's note a couple things here, because what's being spoken of here in Acts 2 isn't some kind of unknown angelic prayer language that nobody could understand. These are actual human languages that they're speaking. So what's the big deal? What, What makes that miraculous? It's because the speakers didn't know the languages. They had never studied those languages before. But they're given the languages so that they can speak to this crowd, get the message out to this international multilingual group of people. I mean, that's a beautiful strategy of why Jesus says, wait, 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 wait here in Jerusalem. Don't don't go out there today. Wait, why? Because I'm going to bring people from all over the world to hear this message and you're going to talk to them in their languages and they're going to take it back home with them. And that's how we're going to get the message out really fast. All right. Brilliant. So that. I can see that kind of miraculous gift still being needed in some extraordinary mission, missionary kind of situations today, but whatever kind of private prayer language some practice today, that's not what's going on here. And if you do believe that Christians do speak in tongues today, um, understand that Paul says in 1 Corinthians that not all have the same gifts, okay? So it's not something that we should all have. And in fact, he says, don't even seek the kind of gifts that edify yourself. Seek gifts that build up the church, that, that help others, that communicate To others. Secondly, Acts 2 says it was the apostles who were speaking, these special 12 apostles speaking in these tongues. Now, there's some confusion here because it talks also about the 120, and maybe 120 were speaking in tongues, but the grammar makes it more likely it was just the 12. And in fact, it's only the 12 who go out and start speaking to the crowd. And uh, they're the ones that Jesus promised. That they would be baptized in the spirit, immersed in his presence and his power. And they're the ones doing all these miraculous signs to th- confirm their message. In fact, we find out later in the book of Acts that they're the only ones that could go someplace and lay their hands on people, and they would receive those kinds of miraculous gifts as well. And of course, you can't have that today because the apostles aren't around today. There's only one other time in the scripture, in the book of Acts, where you see this baptism in the spirit, this very kind of Acts 2 kind of thing going on. And that's years later in Acts chapter 10, when God uses that same sign to show that Gentiles could become Christian. Because up until that time, only Jewish people were becoming Christians. So I just want to make sure we never confuse this special, unique baptism in the spirit event that happened twice with Christian baptism, which we all are called to experience, right? Jesus said that we all need to be born again, born of water and the spirit, right? And that we all share this one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So you see the Christian age is not only the Holy Spirit age, but it's the gospel age, okay? Because... This era of the gospel began when this crowd, who's, you know, uh, have, have a mixture of amazement and skepticism, like, what is going on here? That's when Peter kind of rises up from among the 12 and starts proclaiming the gospel for the very first time. This message of Jesus dying for our sins, rising from the dead. I mean, the, the Word of God tells us the gospel today. We don't have Peter here to tell us personally, but we have his words in Scripture. So the Word of God is a major resource that helps us grow and become more like Christ. And all of scripture is God breathed, but the gospel is the heart of it all. And the one verse that's often used as a summary of this gospel message is John three sixteen, which you may know, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. There it is in a nutshell. So here in Acts, Peter's declaring that kind of message to the crowd They all knew about Jesus. I mean, it wasn't like it was a secret. It was done out and open. A few weeks ago he died, and the rumor was he'd risen again. But this is the first time it was given any explanation of the meaning. Not that it happened, but what did it mean? That it means our salvation. And the first time ever that the terms of salvation were laid out, to believe, to repent, to be baptized. The time had finally arrived. Peter refers back to the Old Testament prophesying that this would happen, that this would be the beginning of of the last days. This day is the beginning of the final era, the Christian era, the church era, the gospel era, the era of the outpouring of God's spirit on all his people. And this era will culminate on another day that's yet to come when Jesus returns with cataclysmic signs in the cosmos, the sun turning dark and the moon turned blood red, and then the end will come. But until then, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's our era. And Peter's sermon just points all that out and says, this Jesus is the Messiah. You Jews have been waiting for all this. And really, the whole world has been waiting for this. And his miracles confirmed his identity. But you killed him. You crucified him. But it's okay because it was all part of God's plan that he would suffer and die. And it was prophesied that he would rise from the dead and be exalted to the right hand of the father. And that's the greatest evidence of all. And the people are so convicted, they cut him off. They don't even let Peter wind up the sermon with an invitation or anything they say whoa 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 so conscience stricken they say what do we do like now we can't wait another moment and that's the most important question you can ever ask in your whole life is what do i do what do i do to get right with god how do i respond to this this news this message and peter replies in acts 238 repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit Say minute. why didn't he just say, believe in Jesus, right? We're just told, we're just supposed to tell people to believe in Jesus. No. Why not? Because they already believed. You didn't have to tell them to believe. They're cut to the heart. What do you do? You take somebody where they are and you lead them to the next step. So for somebody who doesn't know anything about Jesus, yeah, you tell them, believe in Jesus. But for somebody who already does, you say, no, repent. Repent and be baptized. See, because belief isn't enough. I know we're told all the time, all you got to do is believe, that's it. Demons believe, demons aren't going to be saved. you got to believe enough that you're willing to act on it. And that's what repentance is. Be willing to turn to Christ and change my life. Say, I've been going the wrong way. I need to do a turnaround here. I confess that I'm a sinner, that I've lived in unbelief and disobedience to God's law, and I'm ready to turn. That's what saving faith is. And saving faith also includes baptism. You say, well, wait a minute. Uh, why didn't Peter just tell him, hey, all you need to do is pray the sinner's prayer? I'll tell you why, because that's nowhere in Scripture. You never see that. What you do see throughout the book of Acts is people being baptized. That's the response. Because that's what Jesus told us to do in the Great Commission, remember? Go make disciples of all nations. How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what we do. Because that's what they did. We're still doing it. Jesus promised, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. So baptism always immediately follows belief. That's the biblical pattern. And baptism was an immersion in water. It's not sprinkling. It's not pouring. It's plunging. It's dunking because that's what the word means. It's a Greek word. And it means nothing other than immerse. In fact, you see, when Jesus himself goes to get baptized, where does he go? He travels all the way out to the Jordan River so he could go down into the water and come back up out of the water. And when we get baptized, what we're doing is uniting with Christ, identifying with him in his death, burial and resurrection. So it's a big deal. And the Apostle Paul uh, describes it like this in Colossians 2.12. Having been what? Buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. See? See how this works? Now, maybe you, you've seen us do baptisms on our videos, but you don't really know what's going on. Right behind me, directly behind me, is our baptistry. Say, what's that? Well, it's just like a big pool of warm water. It's, it's like a Jesus jacuzzi. That's all it is, just a, big, <laughs> just a big pool of water. You can get baptized anywhere. It doesn't matter. Here, the river, bathtub, it don't matter. Your swimming pool. You just need a body of water. And so whenever somebody comes to place their faith in Christ, they repent. We take them backstage where we got some changing rooms. And if you didn't bring a change of clothes, cool, that's fine. We got t-shirts and towels and robes and whatever you need, hair dryers, got it all back there ready for you right on the spot. And then we're going to walk down into that pool of water and it's about waist high. And uh, we have you confess your faith. You say, yes, I believe that Jesus is God's son. He's my savior. He's my Lord. Okay, good. Well, let's go. And we're going to lower you down because you're, you're dying. You're dying with Christ. You're being buried. And we keep you down there for like five, six minutes. Um, <laughs> depends on how, how bad you've been, right? No. No, we, br- we bring you right back up. No. Just a couple of seconds. Some of you might need 10 or 11 minutes. I'm not sure. It doesn't matter. It's all cleansed away. See, that's what's happening is you're getting an outside bath. But really, it's an inside bath that's going on. You come back up out of the water. You've risen with Christ. You're a new person. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's our pattern. And see, this is the first time Christian baptism is ever given its meaning. You say, well, what about John the Baptist? That wasn't Christian baptism yet. You know why? Jesus hadn't died yet. Hadn't risen yet. You say, what about the thief on the cross? He never got baptized. No, you know, Jesus hadn't died He hadn't risen. There was no Christian baptism yet. And you know what? Even if there were, I think it would have had some logistical challenges getting getting baptized up on that cross, right? So that's not our model. Our model, our example is here in Acts 2. And what happens? Right on the spot, 3,000 people are baptized into Christ that day. That is incredible. It took us years here to reach 3,000 people getting baptized. One day right there. And that's our pattern. And that we, so we do the same thing. You don't have to wait for a special day. We don't have special baptism days. Wait, no, now you don't have to take a bunch of classes. Now, if you've never experienced that, I want to urge you and challenge you and encourage you to do it. Maybe you've been a believer for decades. You were sprinkled as a baby, whatever, but you've never experienced biblical baptism. Don't miss out on it. It's a special experience that you don't want to ever miss. So look, What's the promise? Here's what you're you're getting. The promise is you'll receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. All your sins are cleansed away by the sacrifice of Christ. And from that point on, God looks at you as if you're sinless. That's why you're able to go to heaven, because God looks at you as if you're sinless. And then guess what? The Holy Spirit enters you to help you sin less and less and less and less. (laughs) You didn't get that in any other era of history. Only the Holy Spirit does that. He gives us the power to live for God. He gives us the power to serve God and the power to witness for God. Because I want you to know throughout the book of Acts, whenever somebody is filled with the Holy Spirit, they, they start telling other people about Jesus. They start sharing the gospel. And I want you to be able to do that too. So I'm gonna give you a very simple method that we use around here called Two Verses and Six Fingers, all right? It's something that I think everybody can do. A couple of verses that we've already highlighted. I'm going to have you say them out loud together. These are two verses that you can memorize, all right? John three sixteen. here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that... All right. You got that, right? So... Believe in Jesus as the divine Son of God, this Messiah, this Lord who sacrificed himself for our sins and rose from the dead to give us life. Got that. Okay, what now? Acts 2.38, what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. So we're all going to say this out loud together. Here we go. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, All right, You got it. So John 316, Acts 238. Now, from those two verses, there are three things we're called to do and three promises that we receive. What are we called to do? Believe, repent, and be baptized. Okay, got it? Let's say it with me. Believe, repent, be baptized. All right, what are the three promises we receive? Forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and eternal life. Let's say it together. Forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and eternal life. There you go. That's it in a nutshell. That's a plan of salvation. Now you know how to tell somebody to come to faith in Christ. That's it. Now, what's the result of those 3,000 people responding to the gospel and being baptized? The church is born. God adds them to his church. See, we don't get baptized every time we join a local congregation. We get baptized once as we're lowered in water. We're filled with the spirit and we're added to the universal church all at the same time. That's what 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Paul says we're all baptized by one spirit into one body. And that's the third mark of the Christian era and the third resource that we're given to help us grow and live the Christian life. And that's the church. Jesus gave us the church And we each need to be a part of it because it is the visible family of God, body of Christ, temple of the spirit and holy nation. All right. And so that's why we need to be a part of it, because church is not something you go to. Church is something you are. God has empowered us to be his church wherever we are. And you can't really be his church until you belong to a community, until you are part of a local congregation where you can function as the church and express your commitment to Christ, connection to one another, and contribute to the world because we're all on mission together, sharing the gospel. All right, listen. Listen. Not every group that claims to be a church of Christ really is. You understand that, right? There are some false churches out there. We're warned about that, that preach a different Jesus, that preach a false gospel, that do not follow the word of God, but instead teach human traditions and opinions and secular philosophies. And there are cults out there masquerading as Christian, using a lot of Christian lingo, but... Denying the deity of Christ and the gospel of grace. So be cautious of that. And not every person who attends a genuine church is a genuine believer. Because Jesus warned us there would be false teachers and false Christians and people who are really good at deceiving themselves, good at playing at religion, but not having a personal relationship with Christ. So you got to examine yourself and make sure that your trust is completely in Christ and not in yourself, your works, your ideas, some religion. It's all about Jesus. So the big idea is the Holy Spirit enables us to live for Christ and be his church. Now, what did those first Christians do? What were they devoted to? The last few verses tell us of Acts 2, 42 through 47, that they were a f- a scripture-believing church, you know, because they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. We don't have the apostles to teach us directly, but they have their words. We have them in scripture. And so we're a scripture-believing church as well. They were a fellowshipping church, meeting together in the temple courts and in their homes. So big meeting places and small groups, not only sharing common beliefs, but sharing their lives. They were a communing church, breaking bread together often, which was the Lord's Supper or communion, which is why we continue to do that together every week, to proclaim our faith, to remember his sacrifice, and to express our unity. They were a praying church, not just reciting religious, ritualistic words, but heartfelt communication with God, because prayer invites God's presence, produces a spiritual atmosphere, opens doors, breaks down barriers and advances the cause of Christ. It's prayer that empowers the church for its mission through the Holy Spirit. They were a reverent church. They were full of awe, full of awe. You know, don't you think if more people would sense the presence of the Lord among us, church wouldn't be such an awful thing to them. It would be an awesome thing. It would be, you know, I'm so glad we have great, talented people leading us in worship, but I never want anybody walking out of here saying, whoa, that was awesome. I want them to say, whoa, God is awesome. That's awe. That's reverence. They were a joyous church because it shouldn't be dry, dull, depressing because Jesus is alive and God is here. So it should be glad. It should be exciting. I'm not talking about being phony and hyper emotionalistic. But the joy of the Lord is our strength. They were a giving church. They were very generous in meeting needs, even to the point of sacrificing their own possessions. And nobody forced them to, nobody taxed them to do it. They voluntarily did it because they considered it a privilege and a partnership with God. And they were a harmonious church because the church began in harmony. But over the centuries, it has been devastated by division, which distorts our worship. And and muffles our message and cripples our ministry and stunts our growth because God cannot bless a church full of people stirring up trouble through gossip and slander and bickering and bitterness and dividing over disputable matters. The golden key to church health and growth is to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And they were a growing church because God was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. They were in a live church and that's the kind of church we wanna be, the kind of church we wanna see restored, the kind of results we wanna see today. And so we would love to have you be added to this church home right here. If you don't have a church family, we'd love to have you be a part of this. To experience these promises of God, we wanna be a resource for you to help you grow and live for Christ. And it's very simple, if you've never done it before, to believe in Christ, to repent of your sins and be baptized into him.